I've never had anybody stop and say, well, maybe you're enough on your own to be interesting, but kind of like lit this fire in me to try to explore that further and go, huh, okay. Hi, this is Maggie Rose. You're listening to Salute the Songbird on Osiris Media. Salute the Songbird is a platform for women in music to share their stories and let their voices be heard. And everyone has a seat at the table. Welcome to season two of Salute the Songbird. I'm so thrilled to be back for a second season with a cast of incredibly talented and wise guests who represent the full spectrum of what it means to be a woman in the industry. I'm really excited to kick off this season with the one and only Sierra Hall. Sierra hails from Birdstown, Tennessee, and she's a beloved and accomplished multi-instrumentalist, singer, songwriter, and producer, all titles she acquired before turning 25 years old. Remarkably, she made her Grand Ole Opry debut at age 10 before returning a few months later to join her musical hero and mentor Alison Krauss on that same stage. She played Carnegie Hall at only 12 years old and signed with Rounder Records the following year. She's performed at the White House with Alison Krauss and the man of constant sorrow, Dan Tominsky, at age 20. At that point in her career, she'd already received numerous nominations for Mandolin Player of the Year at the International Bluegrass Music Association Awards and went on to become the first woman to win the award, and she didn't just win it once, but three consecutive years in a row, from 2016 to 2018. She shared the stage with countless musicians such as Garth Brooks, Indigo Girls, Ricky Skaggs, Gillian Welch, Jason Isbell, and Sturgill Simpson, to name a few. Her last two most recent albums, the Grammy-nominated Weighted Mind, produced by world-renowned banjo player and producer Bela Fleck, and Grammy-nominated 25 Trips have been brilliantly crafted by Sierra to encapsulate a sound that's all her own, blending mastery of bluegrass with contemporary arrangements, psychedelia, and profound lyrics written by an artist who tirelessly reaches and searches for what it is that only she can offer with her music and insight. I'm happy to introduce this week's songbird, Sierra Hall. Hey, Sierra. Hey. Thank <laughs> you, you so much for doing this. It's so nice oh. to meet you. Welcome to Salute the Songbird. I salute you. I love what you've been doing. Oh, thanks so much. It's just been so cool to watch your career continuing to evolve. I know you've always been an incredibly accomplished multi-instrumentalist and vocalist, but I mean, I have to brag on you for our listeners, just some of the accomplishments that you achieved before you're even 20 years old, like your debut at the Grand Ole Opry at 10. And then they invited you back a few months later to join your mentor and musical hero, Alison Krauss, on that same stage when you were maybe barely 11. I had then, just turned 11, yeah. <laughs> like, that's so wild. What was that experience like? Well, it's so crazy because, you know, I, I started playing mandolin when I was eight. And, of course, I grew up in Tennessee. I'm from a little town called Birdstown, about two hours northeast of Nashville. So not too far away. And even so, growing up with bluegrass being the, the genre that I was really, you know, submerged in as a, a young musician, um, the dream of playing the Grand Ole Opry comes quick. You know, you're, right. you're, you're well aware of what the Grand Ole Opry is almost immediately. And 
And uh, like I had photos that I had drawn, you know, when I was like a little kid of me standing on that stage and, and usually with Alison Krauss because I got my first Alison album when I was nine, um, about a year after starting to play music and it was just, you know, just absolutely fell in love with her music and it kind of quickly made me realize, you know, I mean, I think I knew basically from the moment I picked up playing the mandolin that I that I wanted to do this for my life but I think like discovering her music really you know further cemented that in in my mind that this is what I want my life to be and so every time I would draw those pictures of being on the Opry stage it was you know usually with her (laughs) so it was kind of like two dreams in one getting to play with her but hey why not at the Grand Ole Opry and um the first time I got to play, um, my brother and I had got to open this show um, in Crossville, Tennessee, about an hour from where I grew up in between Nashville and, and my hometown. And um, we, I think it was like a fairgrounds kind of gig and Mike Snyder was was playing. And so Love we got, Mike. yeah, we got invited to come open the show for him. And for those who may not know Mike, he's a longtime member of the Grand Ole Opry, a banjo player, a mandolin player, a comedian, just super funny wonderful human being and and so we we did our opening set and then when he and we got to meet him before and everything and then when he was on stage uh later he said what did you think about those two kids and of course you know I'm like 10 my brother's I think maybe barely 13 or something and he says uh well folks the next time you see them they'll be with me on the stage of the Grand Ole Opry and that was his way of inviting us to come play was during his set and we were like is he serious? You know, and sure enough, like when he got off um, stage, he was like, I'd really love it if you guys would come join me at the Grand Ole Opry. Let's find a date. So a few months later, we wound up going to play with him. And and of course, that was just unbelievable to get to share that with my brother as well and, and, and get to play with Mike. And he's been responsible for bringing so many young musicians on the Opry to make their debut. Um, he's been really amazing about that and given a lot of young people opportunities like that. Um, but, you know, I still had this dream of meeting Allison and getting to play with her at some point. And fast forward a few months, I was at IBMA, which is kind of the the CMA week, if you will, of bluegrass music where they have the convention sure. and like festival and the awards and all that kind of stuff. And I was there playing as part of a thing called Kids on Bluegrass. They had invited me to, to play a little kid stage with some fellow young musicians. And uh, in walks Ron Block, who's been a longtime member of Alison Krauss's band. And of course, I was just like, oh, awesome. It's Ron Block and, and got to go talked to Ron and he couldn't have been more kind. He jammed with me and my brother and just like hung out with our family. And I just was like, I can't even believe this is happening. And I had just made a little solo album. And uh, I mean, it was, you know, just pretty rough around the edges. I'd only been playing a couple of years, but it was instrumental tunes at the time, just traditional fiddle tunes uh, on the mandolin and with some local musicians. And we gave Ron a copy. And I feel like if I remember correctly, I think, you know, he knew I was a huge Allison fan. So he had me sign one to her, you know, to my hero, Allison Krauss. And he took it and gave it to her. And I don't really know what happened. He must have just said, this little gal is like obsessed with you and your music. But I mean, I was just such a fan and had tried to learn every, you know, little mandolin lick that I could on the, the records and, and, you know, singing her songs. And so next thing I know, like a month later, she calls my house and invites me to come play the Grand Ole Opry. And I'd never played a note with her, but it was just like, what an amazing 
you know, opportunity she gave me at such a young age. I could have totally just got up there and, you know, froze up or bombed it or whatever. But she was just, you know, to invite me to do that on national television is like, you know, was an unbelievable thing for an 11-year-old kid to have that opportunity. So I'm still so grateful. Well, it was probably unbelievable to her to have someone so young be so interested and dedicated to their craft and capable and doing what you were doing at that age. Like, that's a pretty remarkable thing. So uh, it probably was very moving to her. And then you seize that opportunity. And shortly after you were signed to Rounder Records at 11 years old. Uh, I think I was probably closer to 13 or so. It was a few years kind of after all that had happened. And I kind of started, um, like Allison had been on that label for a long time. And of course I, I knew about Rounder because it was the big, you know, for, for people in, in bluegrass music, you know, Rounder and Sugar Hill were kind of the two main labels, but Rounder was extra special to me because Allison had been on that label her whole career. People like Tony Rice, you know, a lot of my heroes, um, had certainly been part of that label. So I, I was pretty excited to have an opportunity to to put out my records with that label. So cool. And you played Carnegie Hall, too, in between that time. And with all these things going on, you were being nominated for the International Bluegrass Music Association Award for Mandolin Player of the Year. And then you won three consecutive years in a row. 2016, (laughs) being the first woman to win that is just absolutely badass. So while (laughs) they were sweet and welcoming to you, you were elevating the scene, I'm sure, by bringing what you could bring to the stage. I, I feel like you're kind of part of this new class of musicians that involves Sarah Watkins and Rhiannon Giddens and Billy Strings, who are bringing this cool combination of more contemporary music that maybe we grew up listening to and blending it with this new sound. But also, were you aware of the movement, the jamgrass movement, with String Trees Incident and Leftover Salmon and kind of how that was bringing folks who were fans of the dead over to uh, these kinds of audiences with those instrumentation and arrangements behind that music. Was that something that you even knew about at the time? Honestly, no, not at all. I mean, I maybe, I mean, I'd heard of the Grateful Dead, like everybody's heard of the Grateful Dead, but I'd never really gotten into their music until... I became an adult, honestly. Um, And even like string cheese, I just didn't grow up with string cheese or fish or any of those kind of bands. But I mean, I remember seeing string cheese play because I would be at a festival they were at. And that's kind of was more my introduction to to them as a band. Um, I totally started in more of a traditional bluegrass kind of people like Larry Sparks or Del McCurry or Dole Lawson. And then um, of course, Nickel Creek, you know, as a mandolin player. Well, we got we got the first Nickel Creek album that Allison produced, the, the self-titled Nickel Creek project, because I was such a big Allison fan, we saw her name on the back of it, and it said produced by Allison, so we're like, well, let's get this. I'm sure that's going to be good. And then, you know, heard Chris Thiele play mandolin, and, and that blew my mind. I, I'd been hearing a lot of great mandolin players, but that was different than anything I'd heard before. And so then, you know, they became a huge influence. And so I should note the first Allison album I got, even though Allison totally started in bluegrass and put some bluegrass on her recordings and stuff if she makes an album with Union Station, but the first album that I ever got of hers was called Forget About It, and it's not a bluegrass album at all. Um, 
and it's still one of my favorite projects of hers. Um, and so I remember we were looking at the in the CD section, and my dad said, "Oh." pointed at this Allison Krauss album and he said, well, um, this lady's good. I bet you'd like her. And I remember looking at the cover of the Forget About It album cover and it was one of those, do you remember the, the kind of era where they would put the sleeve on the jewel case and you'd have like this extra kind of fancy packaging so it would have a little sleeve that it would kind of oh, yeah. slide into? Absolutely. Yeah, mm-hmm. well, so a lot of bluegrass projects were pretty low budget, you know what I mean? And they kind of looked it. And so this one didn't, this one looked like classier in a way. And I remember looking at it, <laughs> I said to my dad, you know, I'm nine years old, and I'm like, this doesn't really look like a bluegrass album. And he said, well, she is. Yeah, she does bluegrass. So I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> There's so many connections that you just made with the look of the album cover and the fact that Allison was instrumental in what I think I perceive and a lot of people perceive to be an album that was transformative for you with Weighted Mind, which has an awesome album cover too. The packaging on that album is really cool, but it's also interesting that Allison was one of the people who helped introduce you to Bela Fleck, who was eventually the producer on that record. What was that process like? Because I know that you started off producing it on your own and you kind of hit a wall or you were seeking guidance. What were some of the challenges and exciting parts about putting that album together at that stage in your career? Yeah, well, I started recording that album a few years before it actually was complete and came out as Weighted Mind that Bela produced. It had been like a couple years since I'd released anything, so I started thinking, okay, it's time to work on a new record. And I was getting more and more into to lyric writing, and like something along the way kind of shifted for me, where I felt like I wasn't just writing kind of as an exercise to write. I was writing because I just felt like I I wanted to sing about things that meant something to me. I love bluegrass; it's home for me in so many ways, but. I've always loved a lot of other styles of music, too, and, and as a singer, when I would sit down to sing something, you know, most of my bluegrass heroes, give or take, like Allison or Rhonda Vincent, there's there's some really wonderful ladies out there, too, that really kind of, you know, represented, so to speak. But, you know, most all my, uh, especially as a mandolin player, heroes were men. But um, as a singer, I just always felt like if I had to sing something, it didn't come out like a bluegrass song, you know? It just wasn't the thing that felt like what I wanted to sound like as a singer. So songwriting kind of became something that felt like um, a necessity as much as a desire, you know, something that if I wanted to really find songs that I looked forward to singing that said what I, something that I related to and didn't feel like it was just a good excuse for me to play mandolin, you know? I mean, um, there's a lot of like really lonesome, wonderful bluegrass so- songs, but there can be a tendency sometimes where it's such an instrumental form of music where sometimes it's like, this is an awesome song and I love it, but it's kind of just a really fun sound to like play music over more than the lyric itself always coming from a, a deeper place, if that makes sense. And there's plenty of bluegrass songs that do that. That'll cut you to the chord. They can be like some of the most beautiful you know, things ever. But for me, I just felt like it was hard to write something that felt 
um, genuine to me and then it sounds super bluegrassy. So I was at a place where like, yeah, I, I was getting more into that and knew that I wasn't going to make a bluegrass record next. I didn't know what that meant, but I knew that I wanted to put the songwriting element at the forefront, whether I played a note of mandolin on it or not. I mean, I love playing mandolin, but I was also like, I've kind of already done some of that, you know, on my previous albums. And this just needs to be a songwriter first album. The record label at the time, they were excited that I wanted to explore, but I think they were also, you know, a little cautious of like, well, what's she going to do? Is it going to be like completely, you know, stepping away from, from what people kind of think of her as being and and so I understand that part of it but at the same trying time trying to insulate you a little bit don't fix what ain't broke right kind of, well and I don't even know that that was their intention I just think you know I was young and but it, even though I was young I felt like well I'd been doing it a long time it's not like I hadn't had any experience but it was one of those things where it was the first time that I felt like the label had gotten involved before I actually did anything like I didn't really have an opportunity to even like try to show what it was that I was wanting before I started getting feedback so I I understand kind of both sides of it but it was definitely discouraging a little bit and so I remember they let me have a couple days to just go in and record I was supposed to record for a whole week but at that point, the label kind of put the chains on a little bit and were like, okay, well, instead of having a week, they made us cancel the week and only do like two days, I think it was. So it kind of, in hindsight, is sort of a bad way to go into making a record anyway, because you're already going in. I mean, and I, I felt like as a songwriter, I was writing these songs that felt more introspective and kind of vulnerable than I had ever shared before. And so it felt like both really exciting, but then to have this kind of like cloud of doubt hanging over me because it's like, well, they don't trust me to just go do it. Now I have to like do something to kind of like prove that I'm capable of doing it. I don't know. It's just like kind of a eggshell kind of way to go into doing something rather than just being free to express it. And so, you know, we recorded six songs, I think. And then I just ended up kind of getting a little bit in a dark place about it kind of where I just was like I don't know I just don't even know if this is really second guessing yeah it's like is this really the direction I mean those lyrics resonate with me so much though on 25 trips too I think you touch on similar themes that as an artist you just we go through the cyclical pattern of like this is the greatest thing ever I know exactly what I'm doing and then you come around to maybe I'm I don't know anything. (laughs) A fraud. And maybe I, yeah, just, we do that to ourselves. And I can hear you on that search, but it's really inspiring because you're clearly not tiring of it. And you have some really poignant lyrics and you were consciously trying to have a bit of a departure to find your voice, it sounds like. I think I almost had to, for whatever reason, you know, I call it coming of age or whatever, just kind of like reaching a new era in my music where I just kind of felt like I needed to, I knew the tides were shifting somehow. And I just, you know, didn't really know what that meant. So anyway, I found myself in this kind of frustrated space. And then, you know, Allison, she's always been just like 
a wonderful friend, but also mentor of sorts that I could like lean on when I was kind of like, I don't know what I'm doing. So I remember kind of just like expressing to her one evening, I went over to her house and was just like, I just, this is what's happened. Like I've done these tracks, but I just don't know. And she even sang on one of them actually. Um, but it was one of those things where I was like, I don't know. I just kind of feel like at this point I was excited about producing myself, but you know, I, I really think that I would feel better just having someone in my corner. But this is the kind of thing I'm trying to do. And so, like, finding the right producer, there just wasn't anybody, like, that was coming to mind that made sense to me. And that's when she said, uh, how about Bela? And she said, you know, there's really nothing musically he doesn't understand. And he knows he grew up playing bluegrass the same way you did and all these things. But he's continued to explore and, and go all these different directions in his career. And she said, and, and I think he would be a really great vocal producer. And so, like, when she first said Bela, my thought was, but this is me trying to not be, like, instrumental right. first. This is me trying to be. So it was like... I'm such a Bela fan, but he would have been not the person I would have thought of. But then she said, I think he would be a really great vocal producer. And she uh, remembered a couple albums that he had produced for like Nashville Bluegrass Band, which is a great vocal band back in the day, and uh, uh, this gal named Mara O'Connell. And so I thought about that, and she said, at the very least, maybe you should just go meet with him and play him some of your stuff and see if he has some feedback for you. You know, he may not be able to produce or may not even want to produce, but like, I bet he would give you enough time to just kind of try to give you some advice. So that was really kind of interesting. Um, so I thought about that and then fast forward like a month, I'm at IBMA at the award show and I'm sitting in my seat and somebody taps me on the shoulder and I turn around and it's Bela and Abby, uh. his wife. And I thought, huh, just the person I need to talk to. <laughs> And I had met Bela, but we didn't really, I mean, we we knew of each other, but we had played very little, but it wasn't like a, hey, B, what's up? You know, I wasn't like calling him up for advice kind of relationship. And so anyway, I just, we kind of reconnected for the first time in a few years, just like a month after Allison had suggested this. And, and so I just kind of told him like, look, this is where I'm at with all of this. And um, he said, well, come, come to my house and let's just, you know talk about it, listen to some stuff. So what was the breakthrough moment on Weighted Mind where you knew that, okay, we've gotten this back on track and this is how I want to make this record after all of the trials you'd been through? Yeah, I mean, one of the things, like when Bela heard the original version of Weighted Mind, which there's no mandolin on there, it's a little slower, swampier, I'm playing guitar and um, you know, there's drums, electric guitar. And I remember him saying, this is all really good. I really like this. It's recorded really well. All the musicians are playing really tasteful. It's an interesting song, he said, but the thing that I feel like is missing, the element that I feel like is missing is I'm not sure I would hear this and think that's Sierra. And he said, you know, in thinking about the things that really make you special and make you stand out he goes it's not that this isn't really good but I feel like someone else could also go in and do this and and it be really good so how can we pull the things from you that really make you stand out and put those things forward in a way that people will really listen and that they'll stop and listen and so I remember the song compass which I had recorded on the original session that was the first thing that we listened to once I went to his house and he said well 
can you just like take your mandolin and play that for me? And I had written it on guitar, so I really, I mean, for one, I didn't play solo very much at all. I mean, I grew up always playing surrounded by a band. And so one of the things he pointed out is he said, well, he said, I think that you just love playing with everyone else so much and you love the way everyone else sounds so much that you tend to assign all the parts kind of to everyone else. Like you can, you tend to be like, oh, this guitar solo would be cool here and this would be cool here. He said, so you're almost not leaving yourself a lot of room to be heard from, even on your own record. So he was like, I'd be curious if you'd just play mandolin and let me hear what that sounds like. So of course I'm like, nervous because I'm like, well, Bela, you know, one of my big heroes who's also really great at playing solo. And I'm thinking, I Mm -hmm. don't play solo and I don't really, this isn't something I've got like worked out or whatever, but I just, you know, gave it a go and played a little piece of it. And like, I just did a little bit and he stopped me and he was like, see, he's like that, that is interesting to me. He said, because I don't think people have heard from you that way. He's, and then he reminded me of one of my favorite albums, Church Street Blues by Tony Rice, which is just a guitar vocal album. And he said, there's a lot of guitar vocal albums out there, but there's not really many mandolin vocal records out there. He goes, what if you did something like that that really allowed these songs to shine through, but while simultaneously allowed you to show your musicianship as well and kind of try to make the songs and the instrument and the voice all become one. And it was just interesting because I'd never had anybody stop and say, well, maybe you're enough on your own to be interesting, you know? And and it's, in some ways, it should be obvious that, well, of course, I could play solo if I want, and maybe I don't have to surround myself by a million things all the time. It's okay, there's time and place for that, but for this moment in time, maybe that was an interesting way to go. And so I think to have somebody that I loved and respected as much as Bela say, I think that's interesting, I think that's enough, it kind of like lit this fire in me to try to explore that further and go, huh, okay, I'm still not sure I believe people would be into that, but like, let me see if you really strip everything away, it changes the way that you respond musically. Suddenly your role becomes much greater in what you have to kind of portray, you know, than it does when you're in a band and you can just play rhythm for most of the song. Or So suddenly I found myself kind of trying to explore how to play melody lines behind my voice and be more rhythmic and all those things that was really fun to try to dive into with a purpose like that. But it definitely changed me musically, I think, to, to have that experience with Bela and making that record. If I reflect on it, the most uncomfortable moments in my career ended up yielding like the best transformations. Like There was always this period of intense discomfort before some of the most meaningful things happened for me. So Isn't that the truth? <laughs> sometimes you just need someone to tell you that you are enough. I mean, that you saying that got me in particular. Well, especially like if you, sounds like we're probably pretty kindred souls in that way where it's like the doubt can kind of creep in and it doesn't matter how good or how hard you've worked to become it, whatever, you know, it's, there's still always that thing of like kind of thinking, well, but I don't know, maybe I'm not good enough to do this or maybe I'm not capable of this or all those things, which is just kind of silly. We're, we're oftentimes the, the ones holding ourselves back or putting ourselves in boxes that no one else is putting us in. We just, like, think we're supposed to be in this box. And so sometimes, yeah, just a, a, a small word of encouragement like that can kind of open the floodgates of, like, the freedom that comes with just kind of being like, okay, hmm, okay. 
maybe I can do this, you know. Hey, everybody, it's Maggie, and I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Sierra so far. But I wanted to check in and offer a little perspective as to why I chose this episode for season two's launch. And it's because in talking with Sierra, what struck me is that one of the most pivotal moments of her career was her realization of her own self-worth. And luckily, Bela Fleck helped guide her to this conclusion by encouraging her to take it down to the studs and telling her that she's interesting enough. But she went there and she agreed with him and realized that what she's bringing to the table is compelling. And it struck me because I don't know that I have yet had that moment where I realized that I am enough on my own. And it's beautiful to see what's happened to her career since that moment and her confidence and how she's able to balance her personal and professional life and just her taking care of herself and understanding her self-worth made her more effective in helping other people. And that's what the show is about. It's about being connected and propping each other up and being stronger in numbers, but we can't effectively do that if we don't understand our self-worth first. So take care of yourself and make sure that you can do just that. And when we go on to keep talking with Sierra here, you'll see how she was meaningfully able to involve other women in her career and her music because she knew that she had the goods. And it's not that she needed other people around, but because she wanted them around. And amazing things happened because of that. Let's get back to Sierra. You've had a really incredible career. You got a jump start on your career that most musicians don't get. There's a theme of the passage of time and making some choices that maybe you felt like didn't result in what you were looking for initially. What is the focus on time and the importance of it to you when you've had a career that's already been longer than most people at your age? Um, it's, it's interesting. I, I didn't really realize like how interwoven it was into the theme of a lot of the songs I was writing until I sort of got around to making 25 trips and then realized, whew, there's kind of a lot, a lot of that being said. And, you know, I think I've always been an older soul, even as a kid. I love to work and I, I, I love the act of really diving in hardcore and kind of like looking forward to whatever's coming up. And, you know, I kind of, I'm very driven, so I'm always like head down working away kind of thing. And I think sometimes when you're just always working and always kind of like thinking about what's coming later, you sometimes don't like stop to smell the roses, as they say, you know? And so I I find myself sometimes like looking forward to like getting through whatever I'm doing right now and kind of the, the thing that's coming ahead. Um, but 25 particularly, which is part of why I decided to name the album 25 Trips, because there's the song that kind of references 25 trips around the sun. And and it's kind of all about like wanting time to slow down a little bit and trying to just like remember to be present. And uh, 25 was a pretty incredible year in a lot of ways of just, you know, kind of um, memorable things happening in my life that I'm like, I'm never going to experience this quite like this again, you know. And, a and lot so of firsts. Just, a lot of firsts, yeah. Grammy and nominations so, and, and just yeah, I got married. Big, big events, just like you know, so so many things um, that that kind of felt like bucket list moments in some way, and and I just kind of really like remembered having a moment where I went, oh my gosh, like I need to chill out a minute and like actually realize that this is not going to be forever, and I need to appreciate this moment that I'm in and, and not let it pass me by because I'm so busy that I'm worried about what's around the corner. Because you've had such a long career, I was wondering if 
the attachment of all those years leading up to these albums was something that you felt at times like you had to overcome or maybe redirect the narrative? Did you feel like it was something that you had to guide your listeners through? Well, when the Weighted Mind album came out, I really wasn't sure what people would think per se, but I think that I had already been through such a kind of somewhat dark time of getting to that place of actually seeing it through to where I was ready to finally present something. Right. And it had gone through the the doubt of like where I'd come from recording the first tracks. And then finally, by the time I got on to working with Bela, I was just having such a good time at that point. I was just kind of like, you know what? (laughs) I'm not even worried about that anymore. (laughs) And it was funny because we put it out. And in some ways, I felt like it got more of a positive response from even my fellow bluegrass listeners than anything I had done, which kind of was confusing to me, but but wonderful, you know, as like I had made a couple albums that it was nominated for album of the year at the Bluegrass Awards. And I was like, this isn't really even a bluegrass album. But I mean, I was grateful, but I was also like, this is kind of it, it was just interesting, you know, where it was like I felt some real support from from that community in a way that was very freeing, I guess. So from I think from that point forward, I've kind of not looked back too much and just kind of went, you know what, people people appreciate honesty. I think they really do. I think they know the difference between when you're just chasing after something for false reasons and when you're actually just doing something because you feel like it's really what's in your heart and what you need to do and say. And, and um, I don't know, I feel like those, like the genre kind of discussion in general, it's like it means less and less, it seems, as we go on with the way we consume music these days. And people tend to be a little bit more widespread on what they're listening to and enjoying. And and I'm, I'm grateful for that because I love a lot of different things. So it's kind of freeing in that way. I kind of want to wrap up with another observation that I've made about some people that you've had involved with your projects, which is a lot of really talented, amazing women. You had Shawnee Gandhi as a producer and Molly Tuttle and Rhiannon Giddens. And of course, you've mentioned Alison Krauss and her influence on your career, Abigail Washburn. I mean, there's so many incredible women who've contributed to your music. Is that something that was important to you that you were consciously trying to incorporate or... Is it just because they are the best or is it both? What's the meaningful side of that to you? I think it's a little bit of both, you know? It, it's sort of, it's funny, I feel like moving forward, I'm probably more aware of how important that is to me now than ever before, than I ever would have even really thought much about before because I've always been somebody that's felt like, well, anything, I am a woman, but anything that I've been given as a musician, I really hope that that's presented to me because I've, worked hard to hopefully be deserving of the seat at the table, whatever the situation is, you know? I think we all want to know that whatever we've been given, hopefully, is is because we've worked hard to deserve it in some way. But yeah, it's like as I grow older and I look around at, at just like how many wonderful, amazing women there are out there doing stuff, I'm inspired by it. And I think there's something really refreshing to being able to find myself in more situations working with with women, especially after so many years of never really getting to work with women. I mean, aside from getting to do some things with Allison here and there, anytime I would go to a festival or a jam or whatever, so often I would be the only female in the room or sometimes the only female on a lineup. I'm sure you know what that feels like. It's like you get there and there may be another 
you know, some of your girlfriends playing on the festival over the weekend, but you'll be on Friday or they'll be on Sunday. And, you know, everybody's right. kind of like spread out. So I feel like there really has started to become a little bit of a shift in just everyone's awareness of kind of like thinking about how important it is um, for us to uplift each other and just be able to, you know, kind of collaborate and have those be meaningful representations of of females in music. So it's, yeah, it's an exciting time for that. The perception that I have of you is that you are amplifying the talents and the voices of these women that you're bringing on your projects. But it's just so exciting to see what you're doing and all the things that you're involved in. And I feel like there are a lot of other women and young girls all over the country who are going to see what you're doing and hopefully be inspired to pick up a mandolin themselves and <laughs> follow in your footsteps. I hope so. It's a it's a fun journey for sure. And, and I, I'm just so grateful I was able to find it young. And I always say if somebody else can find something they're passionate about, whether it's music or whatever, it's an incredible thing to be able to kind of follow your passion and do something that, you know, definitely makes you want to get out of bed in the morning and there's always still something new to chase after so amen it's so nice to meet you thank you you so much for being on salute the songbird and have a great day and i'll talk to you soon yeah thanks for having me that's a wrap we're so happy to have you back for season two of salute the songbird thank you for tuning in to this first episode with the incomparable sierra hall make sure to keep up with her on her socials at sierra dawn hall That's H-U-L-L. And to keep up with me, my music, and my touring calendar, you can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at I Am Maggie Rose. In fact, I just had a single come out on June 4th called For Your Consideration. It's off my forthcoming album, Have a Seat, which drops on August 20th. And we just announced over 60 headlining tour dates on my Have a Seat tour. So check out our tour calendar, see if we're coming to a city near you. We hope to see you. We can't wait to get back out there. And you can find me on With The Band at I Am Maggie Rose, where you can get exclusive Salute the Songbird content, along with new music, live stream concerts, and more. You've been listening to Salute the Songbird on Osiris Media. The executive producers are Kirsten Cluthy and Brad Stratton from Osiris Media and Austin Marshall. And the show is edited and mixed by Brad Stratton. Original music by Maggie Rose. Please subscribe to Salute the Songbird on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast content. And if you like the show, recommend it to a friend or leave us a review so that others can join the conversation. Thank you so much for listening. And to close out this episode, here's 25 Trips from Sierra Hall.
Osiris.